Welcome to Gray Area. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez. In our last episode, Gilbert's younger brother Manny came home from prison. But what should have been cause for celebration left Gilbert more worried than ever. The effects of the prison, it it took a toll on him. It, It was tearing him apart. And he came home with an addiction to heroin. They put him in three drug programs around LA County. The only reason he would agree to go to the drug program was because it was either that or go back to prison. And he said, I'm never going back. Never. He hated it. And I think that was his cry for help. Gilbert had been in prison for 17 years and had spent almost a decade working as a counselor for fellow prisoners. But he was starting to feel lonely, so he put his photo on a pen pal site for incarcerated people. When a woman from Texas named Rebecca wrote a letter that stood out among the rest, they quickly became close friends. It would still be four more years before Gilbert became eligible to appear before the parole board for his very first shot at freedom. And it was a long shot, yet there were reasons to be hopeful. Society was shifting. By the 2010s, evidence was emerging that showed long sentences and over-incarceration cost taxpayers a lot of money and didn't always lead to safer communities. In 2011, the U.S. Supreme Court ordered California to reduce its incarcerated population, ruling that the state's tightly packed prisons impeded prisoners' access to mental health and medical services. These are the ruling's opening words. California's prisons are designed to house a population just under 80,000. But at the time of the decision under review, the population was almost double that. Groups like the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, founded in 2013, were working with legislators to change sentencing laws and pass other reforms. Here's ARC's co-founder James Anderson speaking in 2017. Our system is failing right now, and we have a 70% recidivism rate, 60 to 70%. That's a huge failure. You know, as much as this is about redemption and hope and believing that people deserve a second chance, this is about public safety, and that's what we're really focused on. Under Governor Jerry Brown, after decades of near-zero release rates, more lifers went home than ever before. Still, almost no one was approved by the parole board their first time up. In 2014, only 5% of California prisoners who faced the board were approved for parole at their initial hearing. By 2017, those numbers had risen to 17%. But those still weren't great odds. For Gilbert, his life sentence meant the prospect of walking through that prison gate could still be years away. And he had other worries. His younger brother Manny was finally home from prison, but he came home hooked on heroin. And things at home were just getting worse. Despite being in prison, and despite the deep pain Gilbert felt about Manny, there were bright spots in his life. His friendship with his new pen pal Rebecca was growing into something bigger. They never met face to face, but now she was going to fly all the way from Texas to California to visit him. Um, that was kind of scary. 
that 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 was scary to me because I had never been to a prison. I didn't know what to expect. We barely knew each other a couple months, and the phone conversations went fast. So I tell her, "Hey, when you come to visit me, I don't know if you know if you ever." been in a prison but you, we only get two kisses one when you get there and one when you leave now we're not really just pen pals you know and I, and I hate to say this because it looks like I'm throwing it all on her but really I wanted to kiss her but I didn't feel comfortable enough just going out there on our first visit first time seeing her and just kissing her so I'm like okay this ain't no ordinary love I'm gonna have to just ask so i think both of us were really were really nervous so i asked her hey do you want me to kiss you when i walk out there i do i want to but i also respect if you have boundaries like hey i want to get to know you before we start kissing and she was like no i'm i'm, I'm fine with that like is that the way it works like you only get two kisses and i'm like yeah i can't be hugging you in the visiting i can only embrace fully hug and then after that maybe hold your hand and that's as far as it goes. And I got there and oh my gosh, the women there said, okay, what do I do? And they were so helpful. And even the guards there, they were really nice to me because they saw that I was from Texas. They liked my accent. They, <laughs> you know. I got in their little room with these little bitty tables and little bitty chairs. I go out there, I kiss her, I hug her, I sit down, I couldn't even talk. <laughs> you couldn't talk. <laughs> he just kept his head down, he would not talk. He was so nervous, and so I had to talk for the first hour. 45 minutes, I sat there and just listened in the letters was exactly who he was in person. And he said the same for me too. She told me, I talk a lot, I'm pretty open, I'm friendly, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm be comfortable around you. So I'm like, all right, cool. She was exactly what she said. She's like, do you like what you see? Yeah. She's like, me too. <laughs> like, I'm glad I came. Would you want me to come back? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, dude. Like, I'm in prison with a life sentence and a girl's willing to come visit me from another state and she's this hot. And uh, we got up and walked around and when the officer wasn't looking, I would hug her and kissed her on her cheek. And I stole a little tongue kiss here and there when I thought I could get away with it. And she responded. She responded to it. We went and sat down and I felt like she genuinely was being herself. I think he was looking for, you know, those signs like, okay, did she lie or did she, you know, is she putting on airs, did, you know? At the same time, I'm like, okay, be careful here because I'm vulnerable. I haven't been in an intimate relationship in a long time. So it's gonna be easy for me to be attached to her. My life plan didn't include her doing the, the, the remainder of my time, it, she wasn't part of that plan. It, it wouldn't be for another like seven years before he could even maybe go to the parole board to even see if he was going to get out. So I knew, okay, it's like, okay, we're going to, 
are we gonna, you know, be pen pals? We're just gonna be friends. I can come visit every once in a while, you know, when I can. Is that what I want? Is that what he wants? I had become very independent. She kept coming to visit me. The letters kept coming, the phone calls, and I want her to meet my family now. So I know if she meets my mom, my grandma, my daughter, my sister, then I could kind of gauge them. They're, you know, just great people. And to really start, you know, having that connection with his family. And I think that brought him closer to me is that I had that connection with his family that I would take the time to go visit. I'm still like, don't, don't think I'm coming home. That's my message, like stop thinking that this is just like I go to board and I come home. This is not that easy. This is a very challenging task that I want you to be prepared for a lot of letdown because that's the nature of what I'm facing. A few years passed and I was like, you know what? Rebecca has surpassed all my expectations of how far this relationship was actually gonna go. I didn't think that she would last that long because I was like, once she realizes what she got herself into, she's probably gonna back out because this might be another 10 more years. I couldn't find any data on success rates of couples who met while one partner was incarcerated. But even for couples who got together before the prison term, the odds of staying together through incarceration aren't good. One 2014 study found that each year behind bars increased the odds of divorce by 32%. But she hung in there and year after year, and then people were asking me like, hey, are you gonna get married? And I was like, man, that's not a bad idea. At first it was like, okay, well then this is okay. It's okay if it goes for however long it goes. We have that friendship. Now I really want him to come home. I was like, I'm gonna ask her to marry me. I thought of different ways of doing it and I probably could have done it a better way. When I went to visit, he was acting so weird. I was fixing to leave and he finally, he got down, you know, well, he didn't get down on his knee because, you know, that would have been too weird. But he gave me a piece of string. She was like, oh my God. And Yeah, he was really frightened about that string because if he would have got caught just even with that little bitty piece of string, he said they would have, you know, took him back, yeah. She said yes, I was happy and then, uh... I was like, all right, are we going to do it while I'm in here? Are we going to do it when I come home? That string was her engagement ring. The person who was supposed to perform their wedding at Soledad Prison didn't come through. So Gilbert and Rebecca decided to postpone marriage until he came home, however long that would be. She stayed in Texas, taking care of her ailing father, but she still visited Gilbert once or twice a year. They continued to write letters and talked on the phone all the time. By 2018, Gilbert and I had begun planning this podcast, so we also talked on the phone from time to time. One evening that spring, I got an urgent message from Gilbert's mother. She said if Gilbert called me, could I please tell him there's an emergency and he should call home right away. 
Gilbert and I didn't talk that often, but I kept my cell phone near me, hoping he would call. I came out just to use a phone. Like, a phone line is so long. It takes about 45 minutes just to get to a phone, a 15-minute call. And every once in a while, I would check in with a few friends. You know, I, I would call you, Julie. And that day, I was like, man, I'm going to call Julie. I'm just going to check in with her, see how she's doing. So I got in line, I called you. I could hear it in your voice. You told me, uh, hey, you need to call home. And I was like, why? What's going on? He said, your mom called and said, if I called you, to call home right away. It's an emergency. And I knew the urgency in your tone. Something happened. So I called my mom, and my mom couldn't even talk. She was hysterical. She was crying. And she just said, man, he's dead. my brother I didn't want to hear that I didn't want to hear my mom like that either but I knew whatever I was going through standing in that phone line because I only had 15 minutes I had already used about two or three minutes calling you now my mom and my mom saying call your daughter and Martin does not take it and I knew my daughter been through so much with me leaving her, and she was living with my brother, and she was trying to help my brother too. They were really close. So my mom's like, Marlena's not taking it good. You need to call her right away. So I'm like, I probably only have like nine minutes left. I gotta make a call that it's gonna hang up on me in nine minutes. And I can't call back. And I call Marlena, and Marlena's screaming hysterical. And she's blaming herself. She's telling me it's my fault, Dad. I'm like, no, it's not. I'm trying to use my my counseling skills. I'm trying to be a dad. And I'm trying to stop it from getting worse, the situation. I'm like, this is going to get out of hand. And the phone hangs up. My 15 minutes is up. And they say yard recall. I gotta go back to myself. Now I'm worried about my daughter. I just lost my brother. Now I'm like, who did it? When I was talking to my mom, who did it? She said, the cops. I'm like, the cops? She goes, we don't know what happened yet. So I'm going to myself. I don't know what happened. I know the cops did it. And there's cops all around me. I'm worried about my daughter. I'm worried about my mom. My grandma, how's my grandma gonna take this? She can't handle that. Cause I'm all, here I am, man. I came to prison for revenge. I gave up my responsibility to raise my daughter because my enemies killed my homie. And now the cops killed my brother. And I'm not gonna do nothing about it. I felt like a like a punk, you know? I was like, what do I do here? I can't, I had a chance of going home. If I do anything, I won't never go home to my daughter again. 
And I said, I need to just get in my bed and put my covers on and I need to go to sleep as fast as I can. That morning, I told my Sally, I can't go to work. I had so much anxiety in my body at this, this ball of energy. And, and, and I had all this pain and I told my Sally, hey, I need to be alone, man. I need to be alone today. Can you go to work? Because I, I never miss work. I worked in the drug program and I told him, I can't make it. I'll be in this afternoon. Just give me like half day, I need to be alone. I knew I needed to cry, but in a different way. Because there was people around me. So I told him, please don't tell the cops. Don't tell the CEOs what happened, because they're going to put me in the hole. Usually they put you in the hole for your own safety. They put you in a cell by yourself, so you won't hurt, hurt nobody. But that's not good for me. I don't want to be alone with nothing. I don't have nothing. You just It's just you in a cell. I was like, I can't be like my, I can't. I won't be able to handle it in my head. I need to have access to the phone. When people would lose their loved ones, I was the one that went and got them off the yard and put them in the room. And I helped them just be in a safe place so they could just talk or cry or whatever they needed to do. And I was that person sitting there with them. But now I was the other person. So I'm trying to like do the right thing to take care of myself. But I'm like, how do I get to the phone? I need to find out what happened. I need to go check up on my daughter and my mom. So I, I said, okay, I'm in the cell. I got half a day. I need to work out. The energy in my body, I need to get that out of me. So I worked out hard. I was in there doing burpees. And uh, I was crying. And then Coach and uh, Fernandez came to my cell. I reached out to my director at the time and, and, and she was like, you know, we, we need a couple of people to go check on him, make sure he's okay. Coach is Leo Jimenez, the counselor you heard in episode three, talking about the prisoner's work for Victims' Rights Week. He worked with Gilbert in the prison's substance abuse program. With him was another co-worker and counselor, Jaime Fernandez. Jaime Fernandez, who is an ex-police officer, said, hey, Leo, I want, to, I want to be the one to go with you. The lockdown wouldn't allow the correctional officer to actually open the door to his cell. So it was through the glass. Mr. Fernandez was a retired police officer. They came to the cell door, to the window, just to check up. The last person I wanted to see was a cop. I was like, dude, why did he bring a cop over here to my cell? I wasn't going to do nothing to him, but I was like, why would you bring this guy right here? There was always that fear that there's always that one little trigger that I don't care and just blow everything off that they had been working for. And that's what I was scared of, especially because it was because of police. I don't want him to change his mentality. I don't want him to switch to the old Gilbert that says F the police. I don't care. That's, that was my biggest worry. 
but good thing I had worked on myself so much that I kept telling myself, he didn't do it. It's not his fault. This guy came to help me right now. But it's like I wanted to blame somebody. It's a coping mechanism in prison not to cry. So you could see him holding it back so much. Never once did he, did, did I see any hatred or anger come out of him to say, uh, you know, I hate this place or I hate the police. Fernandez talked to me and he told me, just wait to find out what happened with your family before you do anything stupid. At least make a commitment to yourself. Because he knew. I knew he was right. He, he was reinforcing what my good belief system was already telling me. Like, you know, I had to suspend judgment at the time because I still don't know what happened. And he said, don't worry about it, coach. His actions taught me a lot. Then my Sally came back and told me we're locked down. So we went on lockdown. I couldn't even use the phone and find out what happened. We went on lockdown for two weeks. No phone. No movement. I started writing letters to my daughter. Tr just trying to counsel her, be her, be her father and try to keep her together as best as I can. I wrote my mom, I wrote my wife, I wrote you, Julie. I knew I had to keep programming. That's what I was taught. You gotta keep going, that's what I preached. That's what I told other people that were experiencing what I experienced. You gotta keep going, man. Like, I gotta get up every day. I have to force myself to eat, I have to work out. Do some beadwork, paint, draw. I have to talk to my Sally. I have to be careful what I think. Because my thoughts are going crazy. It's all going to the worst. People started finding out on the tier, the guys that were close to me, what happened. You know, they're sending me um, messages, encouraging me, you know, to do the right thing condolences I even had people come to my door and slide cell phones illegal cell phones under the door when the prison is locked down inmate porters and staff deliver food medicine and other necessities to the men's cells so there are ways to pass along contraband even during a lockdown and they told me hey bro we found out what's going on we know you want to call home the person that sent the cell phone to you said to don't even tell you who they are. They just want you to know that it's okay. Use the phone. There won't be no trace to you. They'll make sure that it, that doesn't happen. No questions asked. You don't know nothing. Call your family. Use it for as long as you want. So now I'm going through, do I take it? Because I really want to call home bad. But for years I resisted cell phones in prison I was like I'm not gonna touch them no matter what happens I'm not gonna touch them I want to go home man really really want to go home Gilbert knew that no matter how good your behavior is even over decades just getting caught once with a cell phone was reason enough for the board to deny parole so as much as it hurt not to hear his daughter's voice to comfort her when she needed it most he resisted the temptation 
they wouldn't let me go to the funeral. Which I understand, those are consequences of my past decision that led me to prison. All things I knew, all things I taught in prison, the things in the groups, that you're, you're gonna face consequences to decisions you made years ago. Even though you change, even though you're doing the right thing, some bad decisions you made in the past, there's gonna be consequences unforeseen you don't even know are coming your way. So prepare for that. And I did, I prepared for years for these, these kind of times. I would never thought this was gonna happen, but I knew there was gonna be hard hard times coming. Since he couldn't go to the funeral, he wrote a letter and sent it to his family. And my daughter read it at the funeral. My daughter stood in my place. Basically in that letter, I was honoring my next generation. My daughter and all her cousins, my brother's kids, my sister because they didn't follow in our footsteps. They didn't do the things we did. They broke the cycle. <laughs> I think that's the best thing I could do to honor my brother. So I still didn't 100% know what happened. When we got off lockdown, I called home and my mom told me that the shots were in his back, but that the police released the information that he tried to attack him. So I said, what happened? She goes, we don't know. We don't know the truth. And they told me, don't, don't worry about it. There's nothing you can do. It already happened. Just come home. Keep doing whatever you're doing and come home. In our next episode, we'll find out more about the deputy who killed Manny. We'll look at a pervasive culture of criminality in the L.A. County Sheriff's Department and a community's struggle to seek justice when law enforcement itself becomes a criminal enterprise. This episode was co-produced by Mara J. Reynolds and Gilbert Bayo. Check out all our episodes and show notes at grayareapodcast.com, and that's gray with an A. And don't forget to try Season 1, where you can hear six stories of justice and redemption. It's rated five stars on Apple Podcasts. The music for this episode was by Blue Sky Moon, Ketza, Komiku, and Nuisance. Thank you to all the amazing artists at the Free Music Archive. Details are in the show notes on our website. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhume.org. For Gray Area, this is Julie Reynolds Martinez, and this is Season 2, After Life.